That's right, we're going to be starting off in 1 Thessalonians, um, and we're actually not going to get very far in there, but I want to spend some time and really hit a lot of the background of Thessalonians. Uh, truth be told, we're actually only going to do one verse of 1 Thessalonians, um, but it's going to be important here to see kind of how, the, how all this comes together. I just want to give you first a little bit of background just on Thessalonica. Um, first of all, Paul would have done this on his second missionary journey. This would have been one of his stops along the way there. You can see there on the list, we've got um, Thessalonica, Jerusalem, Antioch, Jerusalem. He bounced all the way around that area there. Um, And what's interesting is for Thessalonica, where it was a city that had a population somewhere around 200,000. You can see where it's, I got a cool little pointer here. You can see where it's positioned right here in, um, in Macedonia, right along the water of the Aegean Sea. Um, and this would have been his entire journey, you know, starting and, and bouncing all the way around. But at this point, he had come from most, the, the letter that we see in the Bible is Philippians, is where he had gone before this. And then he moves through a couple towns there. And this area was a, it was a port city. It was obviously on the sea. Um, there was, it was culturally diverse. There was everything there from uh, Jewish culture, the Romans, um, Greek culture, and it was really a, a pretty major political and commercial hub of that time. Um, Thessalonica is what we would call modern uh, Thessaloniki, Greece, which is still in the same place, but that's actually part of Greece now. They've, the name is slightly changed, um, but it was a free city that was governed by its own citizens, um, and we see some of that in the scripture as we read along and how they uh, at one point where they bring Jason out of his house and we see that it's the people of the town that kind of they coordinate that and bring that all together. So they were a unique city. But what's even more unique is they were it was placed along a, a major highway called uh, Via Ignatia, which was an east and west highway. And if you can see right here, I'm not turn the projector off. Um, this is the road here. And you can see Paul's missionary journey as it came up here and it kind of bumps into here and goes around. But right there in Thessalonica is where this major, this major highway passed. Um, and it's still there today. Actually, if you look on a map, they still have it named that. And it's a major highway that ran through that area. So it was an important, an important area. And Paul knew as such. Uh, we'll see in Scripture that he actually was specifically called to go there. But this, where it was strategically located in that region was important um, as why it was such a, uh, a prime spot for Paul and his disciples to go to and preach God's word. Um, as we go through here, um, not just tonight, but as we go through the whole series, there's about 10 different elements that I want to read through that you're going to, you know, that'll be parts of this. Um, one is he'll be encouraging the church. Uh, one, he'll be answering some false allegations. He'll be comforting the persecuted flock in Thessalonica, expressing uh, joy in their faith, reminding them of the importance of moral purity, condemning the sluggard lifestyle, correcting a wrong understanding of prophetic events, Diffusing tensions in the flock and the church, exhorting the flock and the basics of Christian living. And he also has an eschatological element of the second coming of Christ that he deals with. So as we go through the next however many weeks this takes to go through, these will all be some underlying themes. They may not be hit on specifically, but these are some areas that uh, this book hits as it goes through. So I want to get into the, get into the text here. Um, the first thing we'll do is obviously I want to read the first verse of Thessalonians and kind of show you where we're going to go from there. But it says, Paul and Silvanus, which we know as Silas, and Timothy 
to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It's a pretty common introduction for Paul in his epistles, uh, but he's got a couple elements here um, that I think is important for us to see, to see what he's trying to communicate and what he's trying to do to the church here. Um, his central theme was to get them to see a couple things. If you notice right there in the middle of the verse, it says, in God the Father, which they wouldn't have had a big issue with that at that time. He would have been preaching to the Jews um, on the onslaught, and they would have, that would have been okay with them. But then he says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he introduces this idea now of here of this, that they've got to see the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father as being the same. And for you and I, I guess that in some ways doesn't seem like a big deal. But in that day, you know, think about it. They didn't have the New Testament. You know, this is all new to them. And they had, they had everything they knew of the Old Testament. You know, so God the Father and all that made perfect sense. And they heard of the coming of a Messiah, you know, those things. But, you know, I think about it like us today. You know, it seems like everybody seems to know when the end times are coming, right? We all have our speculation and so forth. So, so I can imagine in that day it was the same thing. It's just him. Is he here? Did he come? Did we miss him? And so forth. But now they're actually in a place where they've got to be able to understand this. And that's what he's trying to say right here in this first part. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, because in this time, especially in this area, you know, their king, you know, the person they had pledged their allegiance to was Caesar. You know, and he was, he was the guy that they had to pledge to and everything they did. And it was obviously punishable and so forth and so on. But now there's this new king who's on the scene. Um, so there's a couple different things that they're going to struggle with. But he wants to start right out in front and say, hey, here's where we are. This is what you're going to have to deal with. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, really, we as believers are no different today um, in, in how we view the gospel message in the way that Paul was trying to do then as well. He was trying to show them the gospel message was the center and it's what was necessary for the church to be built on. And today we have that very same thing. You know, that foundation that Christ laid with the gospel is what we build upon even now today. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No other foundation other than was laid by Christ Jesus. You know, so we, that's, that's the starting point, and that was a starting point for them, and it's no different for us today as a church because when the, that day, or even in this day, when we build on our own good ideas and thoughts, well, guess what happens? It just falls apart. It has no substance. We build on top of the gospel message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And then Paul, as he's going through, you know, he hits this first introduction, but what I think is important for us to see is we're going to have to, we're going to have to take a step back a little bit because the rest of this, um, of this epistle obviously is him writing to the church of Thessalonica that's actually already in place. But what I want us to do is kind of take a step back a little bit and see how he got to that point. And that's where we're going to go tonight. We're going to look in Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. And what that is is the, is the stories, the picture of exactly how they, how they got there, how it started, how the church started, and where they went from. So I want to read through the text first, and then we'll, we'll kind of start getting into it. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. That's important. We'll go back to that. And it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom, whom I proclaim, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks, 
and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So that's what happened as they're beginning to start the church in Thessalonica. And I think what we need to see in our first point here um, is going to be the very thing that he was trying to get across there is the very thing once again for us today in the church. And is that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has to motivate us to go and tell. That's the first one. The gospel message has to motivate us to go and tell. Because we're not going to move from where we are in any situation unless we're motivated to do so. And our motivation as Christians, as believers, is an advancement of the gospel. So we've got to be motivated just to, very, just to get up you know, and, and make, a, make a motion in one direction. We've got to be motivated. You know, I think so many times you know, we hear the, the phrase of, be careful. In life, right now, I mean, everybody has to tell your kids, you know, be careful when you do this and, and be careful. It's a, and, it's, and it obviously has good merit, okay? I'm not saying don't be careful. But I think, unfortunately, for us as believers, I think sometimes we adopt too much of the be careful mindset um, when it comes to advancing the gospel. You know, we think, what are they going to think about me? Or what are they going to say? Or how are they going to treat me? Or how is this going to affect this, this position for me? And I think we need to be careful in how we are careful in the advancement of the gospel because it should be motivating us to get up to go and to tell people. Go and tell from every area, from, from actually speaking to someone to showing that in our life. We need to be able to be motivated in that. We look at Acts, and this is, and this is where I see the motivation came for Paul and his disciples. If we look at Acts sixteen nine through 10, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And that's what brings him to Thessalonica, is that, is that, is that vision that he received there. And that brings him there and that motivates him. He gets up and they go there with this expectation. As we said, Macedonia strategically, was strategically placed there's a lot of cultural diversity. Um, there was a, you know, there's just a lot of uh, diversity in the cultures itself and their belief system. And God knew that that's where they needed to go and that's where they needed to be. It wasn't by chance, as we saw there in Acts. Part of being motivated to tell is, you know, we've got to be, we've got to be passionate about the advancement of the gospel. You know, if we, it's one thing to have that motivation, but what drives that motivation? Is that me? What drives that motivation? And we have to be passionate about the advancement of the gospel because, you know, we wouldn't be where we are if the gospel wasn't advanced into where we, where we were in that point in our life. You know, sometimes I think we tend to forget about that or the significance of it. You know, we need to be passionate. But how do we, how do, we do that? How do we, how do we have that passion? And I want to start with the first part of Acts 17, 1 through 2. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, 
they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. Now you back up a little bit, and he says they go, they go through those two towns, and then it says they came. Okay, that's, that's, there's that phrase there, they came. And it stuck out to me when I was looking, and I said, there's more to this. So looking at, looking at some of the breakdown of the word, uh, first of all, it's the, it's the Greek phrase, uh, erkomai. Erkomai is the word. But it means to come with intention. It means to have intentionality in what you're doing. Um, the metaphor uh, for it was also to find a place or to influence, to be established, or to become known. Okay, so it wasn't that they just happened to move along there and bump into it. It was a very, that, that word means that they were very intentional and had a plan for going to that town. Now, so that was what was the, the passion that had built up in them to advance the gospel. Paul, Silas, Timothy, throughout this process, you know, they had, they had the vision. Um, and, you know, they knew that the vision, they knew their calling in their life. And they were going there with, a, with that very specific purpose. And I think that's important for us to see because it applies to the same in our lives today. You know, God has a very specific plan and a purpose in your life. You know, some things are, some things are, you know, it's related to you specifically. And then other areas, it's going to be where God's calling you. You know, most recently I was, it's almost a year ago now, I found myself in a place of trying to find a a new job. Um, And and one of the offers that I had on the table was to, was to work from home. Um, And we actually thought it to be a pretty cool idea. You know, I could hang out with Rachel during the day and I get to see the kids more and, you know, we're thinking about making this little office and everything. And as I just, and I had a few other offers, and as I was just praying about that and seeking that, and, you know, Rachel and I was talking about it, and I said, you know, there's nothing wrong with the job, and there's nothing wrong with anybody working from home, but I just didn't feel in that moment that it was, it was the right thing for me. You know, I just didn't feel like, you know, the, my, my very thought was, is I'm going to, you know, if you know anything about me, I don't do well by myself at all. You know, my mom punished me growing up by sending me to my room um, to essentially do nothing. And it was just, it was torture. You know, I was the kid that rode around the subdivision looking for people that happened to be standing on the porch. You know, maybe they wanted to play. Maybe they wanted to hang out. Um, so I knew that this wasn't what necessarily God had for me. And what's just been so exciting is in this new job I have in this new position, it's just been a whole fresh environment um, of people to talk to, to share my uh, to share my story, to share what Christ has done in my life. And, you know, I just think I would have not had that opportunity had I have chosen otherwise. And I believe that that was God working in my life and then just that there's that opportunity to advance the gospel in every area. You know, and our workplace for most of us is, is, the, is that best place. You know, it says there that Paul came in and he spoke um, to the synagogue of the Jews. And that's actually pretty important. That's actually a pretty big deal. Three reasons. One, he had an open door in the synagogue because he was a Jew. Right? So that was a very easy place for him to just walk on in and really nobody would question it. Um, you know, he had, and, and it, had he had preached to the Gentiles first, then he would have had a really tough time of the Jews taking him serious at any level. Okay? And then another, it's just that it's a picture in Scripture that we see in Romans one sixteen that he says he brings it to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. Romans 1, 16, for it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it was a very strategic thing that Paul and those did when they came in. And I think for us, 
the same relevance is for us. When we approach a situation in our lives, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in church, a friendship, we should be looking for opportunity for the gospel to be advanced. And whatever that means, we should be intentional. And we don't just, as believers and Christians, just wander around in this place we call earth. We have intention because we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven and we're ambassadors of heaven and we're here for a very specific reason. Is your ministry view more about your comfort or God's calling to reach the loss? Think about that. Is your ministry more about your comfort or about reaching the loss? You know, I I found myself in this place at times of of, adopting in my own life this Christianity of what does it bring me and what does it give me. And, you know, I'm I'm all for and I'm a firm believer in the blessings of God. But I also believe that as we work and as we toil and we struggle, as Paul says, to advance the gospel, you know, in those moments, in those tough moments, that's the sustaining that Christ brings into our life for us to be able to continue to push forward in advancement of the gospel. Not for us just to sit back and see what can be heaped upon us, but what can we do to advance the gospel, to have passion for the gospel, And the second part of that, we must become passionate about the proclamation of the gospel. The first part was being passionate about the advancement, but now being passionate once we've gotten to that place where we're moving of proclaiming the gospel. In Acts 17, uh, I'm calling it 2B through 4, continuing there, he says, And on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not, and not a few of the leading women. It's so important for us, church, to see this world through the lens of Scripture. And that's what Paul's trying to show them there. He's trying to show them as they, as they sit here and as he's explaining this idea of Christ and that this is the Messiah, this Christ and this God is one and the same, as he's sitting there with them, what you're going to see is that he's intentional about making sure that that lines up with Scripture and making sure that what he tells them is something that they can see and something they can back off of Scripture. That's a, that's, that is the anchor point for us as a church. As believers, if our decisions are based on anything outside of it, then that's a problem. You know, I, you know, our, our life group did this about a year ago. We kind of challenged each other to look at areas of our life, you know, from everything from what we did in ministry to what we did with our family and see how does it line up with scripture? How does it line up with the gospel message? You know, and, and, and why do we do the things we do? And I just think as a body that is so important that as we make decisions in our life, as we, as we move forward in any area, that the lens of Scripture is what we make that decision and what we base that on. It tells us there that he was there for, initial, for the initial part of the ministry about three weeks. He says three Sabbaths. Okay, it's believed that he was possibly there anywhere from four to six months. Uh, we don't really know for sure. That's just an estimate. But we do know the initial part of him going into that synagogue and speaking to the Jews was three weeks long. Um, and then he does, he, there's three main words here that I want us to look at. Um, and those three words are, he says, reasoning, 
He says explaining, and he says proving. You know, and you think, what's, what's so important about that? Or what's, you know, it makes sense to me. But uh, as you dig into it a little bit deeper, you see that it was, once again, it was very intentional in how he was, comp- how he was showing this picture to him and how he was bringing and tying Scripture together. The gospel message of the risen Jesus being the Messiah was a very hard thing in that time, like I said, for them to grasp. Um, you know, we're living it today. We have it in text. We see it. We see the whole picture, right? But in that day, once again, like I said earlier, they, they're not. This is, being, this is being lived out in what they've got going. So he says on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned. So reason comes from the Greek word deolegomai, deolegomai. And what's interesting about it is, you got it up here for me? Cool. To think different things with oneself and to mingle thought with thought. So the Jews in that time, they would have had their own set of thoughts and their own set of beliefs of what, how it connected to the Old Testament, what it meant to them for the Messiah. But Paul coming in, he's trying to connect that all for them. And that's where you see there that this was this mingling of thoughts. You know, this is how I think about it. This is how you think about it. Now let's compare it and let's look at how it does. So there was this reasoning that he came, that he started with. He reasoned with them, you know, knowing that he was going to have to be intentional. There was going to have to be a process of how this was going to take place. And then he says, proving, okay, Um, excuse me, explaining. Explaining comes from the Greek word deanoigo, deanoigo. And it means to open thoroughly. Literally, it would have been the same, the picture as the firstborn and actually male that opens the womb of a woman. And figuratively, it was to expound, to open. Uh, the example would have been there to, to opening your eyes and your ears and your mind. So the first thing he's doing there is he's reasoning with him. He's getting them to understand the different thought processes. And then he starts breaking down into this place of explaining it to him. And in this, this is when he would have started probably making connections to the Old Testament, you know, to the prophecies of the Messiah and how, that, how those things take place. And then he would say, hey, you know how it said he would be hung on a tree? Well, he was hung on a tree. And he would go back and forth with them, reasoning and explaining the connections between what they had heard and now what was actually being lived out and what was going to be essential for them in order to have that changed life. And then he said, in proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then you look at the word proofing, and it's paratifame, paratifame. And it's to place alongside and present the truth. So it would have just been a continual pattern there of then where he would have then paralleled not only what was happening in the New Testament and the Old Testament, but he would have begun to parallel the relevance of it in their life and how it was going to mean something for them in order to advance the gospel. This just wasn't a story that happened over there in Jerusalem and they could just tell their friends about it, but it was something that they were going to be able to apply to their life and then they were going to be able to go out to advance and proclaim the gospel. But they had to see, just like us today, it's no different for us. Guys, this Bible is relevant for us. All Scripture, it says. All Scripture. And, it's, and in, you know, I think sometimes we get caught up in the Bible story mentality that this is what happened. But guys, no, the truth is, this is just as relevant for us today, and it's just as it was for them there. And it has a very intentional part of our life going forward. So that was the gospel motivated us to go and to tell. But you know, it's just like anything else. Once you go and you tell and you get out there, uh, things seem to get, can get tough. 
Now, so the next point here is that the gospel motivates us to press on and to persevere. So it motivates us to press on and to persevere. Now, the section of scripture here that I want to go through is Acts 17, 5 through 9. And it says, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring him out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, looking for Paul and Timothy and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting up against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So just part of it there, first of all, I was just, I mean, I was curious as to see who this Jason guy was. Um, and there's really actually not too much in Scripture that uh, says a whole lot more about him past this. Um, we do know that Jason, uh, which was also a Greek, the Greek word was for uh, Yason, uh, was a common Greek name for some of the dispersed, uh, excuse me, a common Jewish name for some of the dispersed Jews in the area. Um, but I thought it was pretty ironic that his name actually means one who will heal. His name means one who will heal. So here he was dragged out on the street and beat up and they took some of his money and uh, sent him back on his way when they figured out they couldn't get anything out of him. But past that, we don't see a lot more about, about him. But I see, but what I do see is that it takes another level of motivation to keep advancing the gospel when we see adversity, when we see adversity taking place. And I think about it in that moment there for the, you know, as they, as they were there and as they were preaching and starting this church in Thessalonica and stuff like this starts to take place. And all of a sudden, the church says, whoa, this is a little bit different than what we were thinking. This is not quite what I think I may have signed up for. So it takes that next level of motivation when we see adversity. You know, the mobs made a couple accusations that they were turning the world upside down and that they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. You know, I think about in our lives so many times when we you know, when we proclaim the gospel and we take it to the next level and it's, it's most typically when we're going to begin to see uh, persecution or some level of pushback. But usually there's three different responses that we get. One is some people get angry and just tune you out. You know, we've all probably experienced that at some level. It's just they just ignore you. They just kind of write you off. Some people in that moment, that anger elevates to the place, to a level of persecution. You know, whether it's something as simple as, you know, talking about you to somebody else or giving you a hard time um, or just, you know, any little area they can. And unfortunately, in some areas um, of the world, unto death. And then you have some people that embrace the message and ultimately will be saved. And we see that in that picture. that said many of them followed them, you know, Greek and Jew and then, and then also some of the leading women. You know, and that's and that's the and any of those three things can take place. But none of those change what our calling is. None of those change that we are still to advance the gospel. You know, think about times in your life when you knew that there would be suffering and you did it anyway. You know, I think about first responders, for example. Um, you know, the things and the heroic things that they do to save another person's life. And in a lot of situations, you know, really don't even actually think about it. You know, they get the call, they jump in the car, and they go. 
you know, they get out to the scene, anything from a cat being stuck in the tree um, to near-death experiences. You know, but they do it um, just sacrificially. You know, they do that as a job. And I think about us as Christians that that's the very same idea that Paul's trying to show them there, that there's going to be adversity, but the gospel message inside of us, what Christ has done for us, really should supersede that feeling. It really should motivate us to a place of being able to push past that emotion and realizing that the gospel being advanced is what's important. That's what matters in life. And, you know, Paul knew that, you know, the church, the church needed to keep going uh, despite the adversity. This is just one area that we see, but the church keeps going despite adversity. And if you look here, Paul's concerned about it because we're, we'll fast forward real quick to 1 Thessalonians 3. I just want to show you one part here. It says, but therefore, when we could bear it no longer, remember now he's going on and he's moved on to the town. He's writing back to him. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and to exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. So he's pointing out the fact that they're having to deal with these things for you, for yourselves. Know that we are destined for this. He's talking about that crown of righteousness. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith and to fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul's concerned for his church. You know, Paul was called there as the pastor. He was called there to shepherd that church at Thessalonica. And he's now left and he's now thinking back to what he started there. And he's knowing that they're having to deal with adversity and the things that they're, that are just, you know, he's concerned that it was the church would fall apart of. But actually what he's seen is that they're actually pushing in even further. Because if we look here in the next part, it says the church keeps growing through adversity. The church keeps growing through adversity. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, 8, which is just, just beyond that. It says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith. Now, this is him. He's now got the recount of how they're doing and love and reported that you always remembered us kindly and longed to see us as long as we to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about your about you through your faith. For now we live. And if you are standing fast in the Lord, as you standing fast in the Lord. You know, so many times we see it is when there's adversity and there's persecution in the church. It's typically when you see the church really dig in and really come together and really, you know, meet. I just think about times in our nation when things happen. It's like all of a sudden there's this overwhelming sense of needing to bring God into the situation. And I realize there's a part of that that's um, emotional. But as a church, you know, we shouldn't just be in and out on these highs. We should always be in this, in this stance here of moving. And it says there in that last part that they're standing fast. You know, the picture there of standing fast is just as in Ephesians when he talks about the, the armor of God. And he says that our feet are to be shod with the readiness of the gospel, you know, and that we're ready at all times. The word stand is the Greek word histeme, and that we, it's to stand against. You know, with the Roman soldier, he would have, in his shoes, they would have had uh, some sort of small little spikes here on the front side of the shoe. And the idea is when they would come into battle and they would plant their feet in and they would push, 
It was like cleats. It was something that they could push against, that they could stand against. And that's what Paul's telling them there, that they're standing fast in the Lord. That they're pushing back and, and, and moving forward, not, coming, not moving backwards, but pushing forward. You know, I think about a tree that, the, you know, the strongest plants, you know, have the deepest roots. You know, Paul's trying to show this picture of what it is to, to dig in. And you think about that in our, you know, for whether you garden or not, or whether you just observe trees, um, you know, that's the very picture we see there of, 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 of the root, the taproot of a tree that dro- dro- drives down into the ground. But what I think is interesting is the taproot of the tree actually starts from what's called the radical of the germinated seed. It's the very first thing that comes out of the germinated seed, and it's what anchors that plant into the ground right off. And from that grows this taproot that obviously goes down as deep as necessary to support this, this tree. You know, I think my, uh, my, one of my sons right now is actually on vacation with my, uh, with my parents in California, and he sends me a picture of the sequoia trees. And I'm sure many of you, many, many of you may have seen them. Um, I, never, I haven't had the opportunity, but it's just amazing how big it is. And I just could only imagine the size of the taproot of this thing. I mean, this tree is just hundreds of feet tall. But what it takes in order for that tree to grow tall is for the, is for the equal thing for it to go down. And that's what's important for us as Christians. And, that's what, and that taproot that we set in is when we anchor in on the gospel, when we anchor in on Scripture. You know, so that when different things of life come and toss us around, we don't move off of it because we are standing firm on God's word. An anchor that holds in that situation. You know, you even think about, you know, going back to the roots. I mean, many of you have experienced this. They just go anywhere and everywhere. They bust pipes. They lift homes. You know, they break rocks. You know, they are everywhere. You know, I've got pine trees in my yard. And, you know, I have not obviously had to deal with one of the tap roots. But everything that comes out from the side of it is enough to deal with. If you've dug up anything around there, everywhere. They're everywhere, and they're a pain to get through. But the importance is for us as, as Christians, we want that in our life. We want our roots deep, and we want them wide. So that when the things of earth come against us, we can stand against it, but not in because of who we are, but in who we're rooted in and what we're grounded in. The third thing is that the gospel transforms people. The gospel transforms people. We go back to 1 Thessalonians now 1, and I'm calling it B. It's kind of the second part there, but he says, To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, Paul wanted to show that the church was not just merely a Jewish assembly, that the church of the Thessalonians were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't in whoever the person that was there, it wasn't having anything to do with the building, but that the church was based in Thessalonica in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we know that the church, the meaning for it, the Greek word for it is ekklesia, which is a calling out. You know, we are called out from where we are as the church. You know, we call this on every Sunday that we come to church, but in reality, the church are the people that fill the seats of this room. This is the building that we meet, but the church is the people, and the church belongs to God. And in that is where the power is. 
You know, for us, maybe sometimes it's a little tough to grasp. It's a little hard for us to understand. But the reality is, is we all have a very intricate and a very intentional part in the body to meet in order for one thing, for Christ's name to be glorified. And in that, the advancement of the gospel takes place. So the gospel is what transforms people. You know, so many times in our in our Christian culture, you know, it seems to be good ideas and great programs and catchphrases and all those things that seem to drive people to where they attend on a Sunday, you know, to that building that they all go to. But guys, that's not what the church is built on. The church is built on the gospel message. And then on top of that, on top of that, God puts the body into place to put into place good ideas and great programs and all the things that we do here at this church. But those things are nothing if they're not, once again, what we saw in, the, in, the, in 1 Corinthians, that it's on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's what has to happen. That's got to be secondary. That's whenever we move forward and we're able to advance the gospel, but not first without an understanding of the severity and the importance of Scripture. And then the fourth point, it says that the gospel transforms our position. You know, at first we are... We are transformed, the, the, the people are transformed, and then now we look at the position. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, the last part there, he, he, ends, he ends this first sentence of his introduction like he does in all of them. It's slightly different in how he'll end the epistle. But he says, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. This, he's trying to show us this picture that we were, that we were lost and that Jesus Christ provided a way out for us. Second Corinthians 5:21 says for our sake he made him to be sin who be sin who knew no sin so that he that we might become the righteousness of God. In that moment our citizenship is immediately transferred to a different kingdom. It's in that moment that we come into righteousness before a holy God. Colossians 1:13 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Who's so making sure he shows this picture that the, our position in where we were is then changed when Christ comes in. We were in this position of being wretched and sinful. And he comes in and he immediately transforms our position into one of righteousness and being clothed in him. When we look at the word grace, you know, grace is our standing, our position before God. And we are righteous in that moment before a holy God, clothed in Christ Jesus. Grace is that free and unmerited gift. And, the, and actually the, the Greek word for, uh, for grace is called charis, And it means it's graciousness of manner or of act, especially the divine influence upon the heart. And in its reflection in the life, a gift. The grace alone is what comes from Christ alone. And then he talks about peace. And peace shows it. And peace is a picture of our relationship with God and our standing with God. That in that grace that we received, now we walk in this peace with Christ. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, I was reading some statistics the other day on uh, just different things in our culture that drive us away from peace. 
and the numbers are just staggering of all the different things out there from uh, different things that are from emotional to physical. And there's always, you know, there's just everything you read in the, in the news, everything you see is all, it's just like everybody's in this big panic of life and what's going on. How am I going to get here? How am I going to do this? And don't get me wrong. I understand that there's urgency, okay, in situations. And that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about as a believer in Christ, just as Paul would have been speaking to them there, is that he wants, in order for us to have an understanding of grace and have an understanding that we serve and we live for a sovereign God, church, that should come with a level of peace in that moment. Not because of who we are, not because we're able to harness our emotions, not because we have no problems, but because despite what's going on in our life, despite that situation, but God. Does it change who God is? You know, guys, I think about the most terrible thing that could happen in your life. And if that happens, is God any different? Does it change what he did? Does it change what he did on the cross? Does it change that he was died, buried, and rose again? Does any of that change? It doesn't. But so many times it does whenever we, re- when we meet that moment and all of a sudden we realize that we don't have that peace that we thought we had. You know, I sometimes think about it in my life and I, I guess it's more of an exercise. And, uh, you know, I, whenever my, uh, when Rachel was pregnant for our first, our first child, you know, she, she lost him. Um, I say him, I don't know if it was, we have all boys, so I'm just assuming that it was a boy. Um, and, you know, it was in that moment, as sad as that was, and as, as, as tough as that was for us to go through, and as tough as that was for me to see, you know, Rachel go with that. But what I also saw in that, that it was the time in my life, not only for myself, not only for Rachel, but for our marriage, where we pressed into Christ like I've never, never done before. Because... You know, as you, as you lead up to that, you, you know, we obviously had never experienced any of that at all. You know, it was our first pregnancy. is exciting. And it's in that moment that you realize that your trust is in Christ, okay? But then even once it did happen and even once it took place, it didn't change who God was. If anything, if anything it, it brought us to a place of a deeper relationship with Christ. And then I look back on it now, you know, almost 11 years later, and what a testimony it has been in our life and how God has used that, you know, to just to, to speak to people, to be able to, not even to speak to someone, just to be able to relate in that moment of what they're dealing with. But, you know, had, had, if you don't have the peace of Christ in those situations, it's going to be tough for you. It's going to be tough for Christ to minister to you and to speak to you in that moment because you're off worrying about something else. Whenever everything that happens in our life Guys, we need to be in a place where it draws us to Christ. We need to be in a place that in every situation that we point to Christ. And that in every situation we look to see what Christ is doing in that moment. And I don't say that to get you down on yourself, but I say it as to exhort you, to encourage you. That when you meet adversity in your life, press into Christ like never before. It's in those moments we don't want to read scripture. It's in those moments we don't want to pray. But I encourage you, pray, get into the scripture, seek God like you've never seeked him before and watch him work in your life as you are intentional about proclaiming his gospel. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this night. God, I thank you for this church. God, for just a body of believers, God, that just seeks your face. God, who desires to know you more. 
And then I just pray, Father, that your anointing would be upon this body. God, that you would use us in a mighty way in this community. God, that you would show us, God, areas that we need to go, just as Paul was shown to go to Thessalonica. God, that you will show us the areas in our life that you have for us. And that you'll point us in that direction. And God, we'll have one goal. And God, that is to proclaim your gospel, that you are the Christ, the risen Savior. God, in Jesus' mighty name, Father, when we leave here, God, with your word heavy on our hearts, God, allowing us to be honest and God, allowing it to change us. God, in Jesus' mighty name, amen.